Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're on Team Human, folding the fringes back to the center, a celebration of the deeply weird potentials of human awareness and activity, as well as the highly improbable rise of human beings in the first place, and an exploration of the challenges of keeping it all going in the face of increasingly automated extraction, repression, surveillance, and control. It's time to design reality on our own terms. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Coming to you alive from the Gray Area Foundation's Historic Grand Theater, a bastion of humanistic resistance in the otherwise gentrified monument to venture capitalism once known as San Francisco. <laughs> Playing for Team Human tonight, the author of Technosis, Nomad Codes, host of The Expanding Mind, newly minted PhD in religious studies, a man I'm proud to call my friend, co-conspirator in the trenches of consciousness for the past 25 years, Eric Davis. This is fun, I know, it's crazy. Okay, let's talk. Let's gab. So, dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, dude. Because the world could end in any minute, let's start big. What the fuck is going on here? Have you, <laughs> do you have any idea? Have you figured it out since we last spoke? No, no. <laughs> I would say that I'm trying to uh, develop uh, strategies of um, simultaneously uh, staying awake and clear and paying attention and not getting so freaked out that I just hide. 
And, and that's like the best, you know, that I can come up with. I mean, I have certain ideas about what's happening with, you know, out of control feedback loops and the kind of stuff you're talking about. I mean, what happens when you, when we, these devices model our own behaviors and all these things and we're starting to feel it and it moves into our, to the unconscious mm -hmm. and moves into all our bodies and all these sort of tacit realms where we don't even usually use language and it's already kind of present. So there's, you know, it's a, it's a very disturbing uh, situation. Um, but then even beyond the situation, I mean, beyond the, 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 the actual conversation, I mean, like, have you figured out, like, what's going on here? Like, you know, like, like these, these VC people were telling me that now we know that we're just some experiment in a, you know, grad student's Petri dish or something, and it's like, I don't think that one, that doesn't sound right. I mean, what, what, what is this? What is this? You know? You're bringing it high. I mean, I, I, I think it is a, uh, there's a, an element of, of uh, chaos to it, is what I kind of feel, is that, uh, I mean, one of our, our you know, co-inspirations uh, co was uh, Robert Anton Wilson. We talked a little bit about him. And uh, I think that reality is not a singular thing. I think it has multiple dimensions. It has multiple meanings. It's moving in different directions. It's always been like that. And that now we see an intensification of that so that we're actually moving between different, not just worldviews, but worlds that are sort of building upon themselves and spreading outward. So just the way we, we can look at the future of, of humankind and say, well, you know, at some point there's going to be like multiple human species because some people are going to have access to tech and bio biological tech and things and, you know, intelligence enhancement devices and not everybody's going to have them. And at a certain point it's going to start to start being different things. And that kind of multiplicity is happening even as these systems of control are trying to kind of keep things in a unified capital consumer framework. But I think reality itself is continuing to sort of splinter in a variety of ways. I know, and it's weird though, and as we speciate, you know, and I'm someone who, like you, has always been like, full speed ahead, pedal to the metal, let's see what's out there. I'm kind of like, well, maybe I'm gonna speciate now. Maybe this is time to get off the bus and just, you know, kind of this, this level of development hasn't been fully uh, explored yet before I, uh, well, yeah. so it's really weird be becoming middle-aged in this moment when you were, when we were these forward uh, druggy weirdo tech, like let's push the push it all the way, Monda 2000 people, and then it's you know sometimes I think oh I'm just getting like to be a fuddy duddy because I have more conservative ideas about certain things I'll go oh let's let's move a little slower with that one or you know maybe we don't want to go around that corner and then and then how much of it is just a sort of uh, uh, the fact that I'm still kind of an analog person. I mean, you were talking about these sort of digital things, and, and one of the ways I keep myself sane is that I'm very aware of the way in which I still am analog to some degree, and that I nurture that part of myself, which is about like being outside, it's about being in nature, it's about being okay with the ambiguity, with not knowing, with like getting away from knowledge, getting away from like, you know, data in my brain and just getting kind of comfortable even with the discomfort mm -hmm. of that part of, of reality. But there was this sense that digital technology gave us analog, spiritual, psychedelic people these ways to explore and push forward and move out and extend our nervous system. But then it was like, oh, there's something pushing back there's some, and and that thing coming back you know didn't look like are you serious it looked like ray kurzweil yeah. you know yeah, sure you know or or 
or like, you know, NASDAQ Stock Exchange or something. And that's, that was, oh, you know, don't touch the stove, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think one way of thinking is that, is that for, you know, whatever, since the, since the emergence of the state, you know, whatever, Babylonian, whatever, there's been, human beings have been existing in relationship with these non-human systems, institutions, writing technologies, emergence of, of new kinds of markets, data, and all of these, and, and so there was this kind of balance between human reality with its stories and its myths and individual loves and failings and death and all that kind of stuff, but there's this sort of context that's sort of not entirely human that is partly making us who we are, and that those contexts now, which we didn't really recognize, mm. the depth of them, right. and are now all digitized or all feedbacking or are becoming increasingly intelligent, and there's so much of it that is kind of overwhelming us. Almost the same way that we're overwhelmed by, when you really start paying attention, how much we're dependent on natural systems that are incredibly complex. We don't know anything about them. We should be like, you know, genuflecting before the mysterious complexity of the biome, but we don't. We're just like, oh my God, I can't even deal with it. And that's going on, sort of through the gaps of all this technological complexity. Well, I mean, but we, we started out, uh, and you in particular, sort of with, with almost a coincidental balance. In other words, you, we were living in this sort of the, the Venn overlap between religion, psychedelics, and technology. And a sort of religion kind of gave us an anchor to human origin, the technology gave us a frontier, and then the psychedelics kind of helped us orient in that in in there. It, it's kind of harder to maintain that balance today. Yeah. It feels like. Yeah, yeah. I would I would say it's almost flipped in in some ways. I mean, I I'm in a funny place where I I always identified with being a psychedelic person since I was in high school, and even when I went to Yale and whatever, I was like, oh, I'm a I'm a weirdo. I'm still always a weirdo, and so. The, the, the fact that technology had a space for that that was looking forward, that wasn't just looking backwards, that was a lot of the draw, you know, coming out here to the Cyberthon in 1990 and Terrence McKenna and Leary and everything. I'm like, oh my God, it's like all happening again. This is, this is a way to stay close to that kind of energy. And so now, again, it's another one of these weird uh, middle-aged flip-flops where I'm like looking around and like, you know, psychedelics are everywhere. Hey, you know, New York Times Magazine thinks psychedelics are cool. And you know, Maps thinks psychedelics are cool. And everyone's going to the jungle and, and it's all normal. And, and it's extremely disorienting because it was always countercultural. It was always like pushing back a little bit. And now I'm not even sure how much of it is just kind of getting people used to the fact that reality is very liquid and that it's going to be increasingly rewritten faster and faster and that a little psychedelics just helps you go, whoa, I better just keep breathing, pay yeah, attention, although... you know? And so it's almost just like a way of padding this post-human transformation and that a lot of the, whatever, edgier resistance and other kinds of values that went along with it I, are sometimes Harder for me well, to it see. feels like, you know, the psychedelics now can be so titrated to not challenge. I mean, if you see, you know, the CEO of some friggin' evil company can now go and do an ayahuasca oh, yeah. trip and come back and still be this fucking evil, evil yeah. CEO of that company. Yeah. It's like, did they have an ayahuasca trip or not? What yeah. happened? That's the, big, <laughs> that's the big mystery for me, you know? Like, right. I mean, you know... I guess I used to wonder that back when, though, because, you know, I did psychedelics, and I'm like, oh, my God, if everybody did this, then, oh, the world would be beautiful. But then you go and you see, you know, kids in the ACDC parking lot can do an acid trip, and they don't have any of the same... Yeah. Uh, it's just a high. It's just a, a, 
a textural experience for them. Yeah, but I think it's the example of the uh, the VC is is even worse than that. I mean that the the you know the the punk rocker who just wants to have weird experiences and intensify chaos, go for it, kid. But there's actually a kind of uh, ameliorating quality to these things for people who are living in very high stress situations where there's a lot of moral complexity to what they're doing that they're probably not aware of a lot of the time or they have their justifications to, to outrun it. And there's a lot of difficulty in being that kind of person. Psychologically, that's tough. And so then you can go into these environments and you get a sort of you know, images, experiences, body things that, that maybe actually create a space for a kind of transformation or a kind of healing. But it's, I, I, I trust that human beings are able to take just what right. they want and not necessarily go all the way through. Some people do change. Some right. people go, come back and go, I can't do this anymore. Right. But, but I, a lot of them go, you know, well, I can do this out there. I'm going to have my, I'm going to pull my kid out of school and send him to Rudolf Steiner. I'm going to get a mm -hmm. goat share or something and mm -hmm. live this really organic life and not let my kid on the iPad. Mm -hmm. But... I'm going to sure sell to other people's kids yeah. on the iPad. Yeah, and that's the whole that's the whole weakness of the the not just psychedelics or spirituality, but just the whole kind of lifestyle oriented um, uh, evolution progressivism that we associate with the '60s. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I think it's too cynical to say, oh, they they should have known, or they were just naive, or that we you know we the moment we lost actual real in the street politics that we went south. And I I really admire the hippie vision that it's really important to work on your personal life and how you live your actual day to day and how you eat and how you learn and all of mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And then there's a spirituality to that. But it's clear now that there's a way of, that that becomes a kind of pad that allows you to not deal, not necessarily have to feel the, the horror of what's going on because you can like, wait, I know how to do mindfulness, I can control my mm -hmm. reactions, so even though I'm feeling, okay, it's okay, I can just do that. And even though I still do all this stuff, I do yoga, I, do, I, I meditate, I still take drugs sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm, that's the kind of person I am. I'm also very aware of the way in which it is, it's compromised. And it certainly no longer it helps in itself. It's got to be coupled with other things. And if it's not, then it's kind of bullshit. Right. And I mean, how it couples is the question. I mean, the, other, the, the, the thing that surprised me about technology and I guess psychedelics too to some extent, but almost more to technology and even the self-actualization movement in the West Coast and all, and I got this partly by reading Technosis, is the, the Gnostic urge to get out of body. As if, okay, now we have these technologies, the first thing that people are thinking of is I'm going to, you know, journey out of body or get to have lucid dreams as if I don't know, does that come, is there some essential self-hatred that people think that the, oh, it's just my meat suit, I'm going to get out of that, yeah. and astral project and be, <laughs> you know, and the technology was going to then yeah. do that. What is that? Yeah. Is that is that self, is I, that a, yeah, That's a, a good question. I mean, it might, it might, it's, it's partly, maybe it's partly discomfort or partly a, a certain kind of body hatred or a unwillingness to accept the full range of being in a body, which also means being sick and dying and the whole thing. You know, it's a, it's a package deal. Uh, and so people, there's still a, a, an immortality desire. I think a lot of it is the, is, it has to do with mortality even more than, more than the body. And it certainly wasn't always that way, you know? It's not like everybody in, the, in, the, in Paleolithic times was like, Let's get, you know, let's start yeah. doing cave painting because we can escape the body. You know, it's like, 
you know, that, this is something that we learned as, as modern people. Well, it's sort of the cave painting people and in indigenous cultures, you know, their religions, their spiritualities were circular. You know, so everything they were doing was a reenactment of some divine energy or some divine act. Life was reincarnation. You'd come back. And then, you know, bless their hearts, you know, the Judeo-Christian line was more about we're going somewhere, you know, and it's great. We're going to have progress and social justice and all these terrific things come from a linear understanding of history. But people then, they kind of stop looking at what they're leaving behind. They're kind of not looking at what the tailpipe is emitting as they're, yeah. as they're driving towards utopia. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't understand that lack of looking beyond. I mean, I'm, I was always very aware of what came before me. And I mean, I do a lot of history and I'm, I'm aware of the like what keeps cities alive for me, because I think that San Francisco is changing the way you, you, you've talked about, but I, I think most cities are, are significantly yeah. worse than they used to be. And, and when I'm, oh, I'm gonna move out of this place, I'm like, where the, where the right. hell am I gonna go? You know, it's like, and, and so part of the way that I, I resist that is just knowing the history of places. So I know that even though now it's this cheesy new uh, barber shop or whatever that this place was a place where there once was this psychedelic, da, 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 you know. So I have layers of history as a way to like orient me personally because I need that. If I don't have that, I start to just get too spun out. But that is a, not a dominant uh, uh, feature of our culture, that kind of appreciation for the, for the things that go. And then I start sounding like an, you know, an old man again. Like, oh God, yeah. you kids didn't appreciate it back, you know. Well, we may have changed, but the world changed too. It did, I mean, it did, it did significantly. I mean, the, the thing we haven't really talked about so much is sort of the you know, alchemical uh, and magical sensibilities, which again, I mean, maybe it's again, as a younger person, you think of magic as in order to do something, to get something and to do a sigil and oh, I'm gonna get this thing. And now it feels like magical practice in some ways is a way to orient. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a way to I find think that's, coherence. That's very good, that's very well said. I mean, the, the reasons that a lot of people talk about, say, I'll, I'll use meditation as a different example, but it's not dissimilar. You know, oh, I do it to like whatever feel peaceful or to uh, calm my mind or to, you know, understand reality. And those things are all really good. But a lot of it is just that I want to have my consciousness and attention to be as sophisticated and not, I don't want to say controllable, but able to operate at different f rates, frame rates, different degrees of sensibility as possible because what I see happening is that the very space of attention and consciousness is itself being attempted to be disrupted by outside forces and all the kind of various forms of mind control and brainwash that we're swimming in all the time. I don't think I'm outside of it because I can do this, but I do believe that it, or, it can orient. I mean, the, the trick for me, and I'm still pretty disoriented, but I mean, uh, um, yeah, God bless, uh, <laughs> is, I, I kind of understand, if I chose, I want to get oriented. I feel like I could spend my time and you know, meditate and do kind of self-actualization practices for me, but I don't care about me. Right. I mean, I'm caring about the team, you yeah. know, the collective, the culture. It's like, how do we, how do we meditate the collective, you know, yeah. how do we how do we do this en masse? How do we do this as a group? That's a really good question. I mean, for me, I don't I don't really quite experience it. That there's an element that it 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 allows me to like 
remains, retain some kind of ballast, but it also allows me to look more closely in people's eyes. Mm. And it particularly allows me to sit with the horror and the frank, frank kind of grossness of our moment where there's a lot of things that hit and you have a creepy reaction, especially you get a little older, you're like, oh, that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> there's this weird moment there where you're like, well, if it's really creepy, I can pull back and go, oh, that's some of that stuff I don't want to deal with. But I, my practice now is like, whenever I sense that, I go right to it. But I, I don't want to get overwhelmed with it, so I kind of eat it. I kind of like, go, oh, what does this taste like? What does this creepiness well, feel like? Well, it's like Lauren does. It's yeah, like, exactly. is, Alexa, like oh. is Alexa creepy? It's like, well, let me be her and see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, these things are also a way to get more intimate with the world. Not just, it's not just about saving myself. It's about being able to be intimate with right. the world and people. And one of the keys to that, and, and uh, Lauren definitely has it, and, and we did have it, and I think we're getting it back. One of the keys to that is playfulness. You know, it's being able to do it. Uh, it's back to Robert Anton Wilson and the Discordians, like, oh, wait a minute. If we, make, if we can not gamify it in the, in the Silicon Valley way, but if we understand that this is play, we can get into the scary places without that same, you know, locked fear. I think that's very well said. I mean, I, I think getting that playfulness back into meat space, in your <laughs> phrase, is, uh, is one of the key elements. And, that, and it does involve how people move down the street, and it is very unfortunate that people are both distracted, but as you say, they're no longer performing for everyone as much. I mean, it's no longer about this kind of shared space. So I don't, I don't know how you do this, because I don't do a lot. I don't spend that much time on those things. So uh, well, and play on those things you know, is like work. You're like doing these yeah. little puzzles and things. I'm going to sit on the train and do these Sudoku things or, you know, <laughs> solve things. Oh, 30 points. Okay, yeah, good, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, that's one of, I, one of the reasons I, I still go to festivals um, because even though they're goofy and, I, you know, so, uh, again, I've, I've been mentioning this all the time by, you know, feeling like a middle-aged guy, but like here I am at a festival because they get very playful. There's a very open space, very analog, very unpredictable, lots of room for humor, especially if you play back. It's, it, it's a great space, so I really feel like recharged there, and it makes me realize that people, younger people, a pe lot of people like it. If, if the space is appropriately set up, people will do that. Even in art spaces, if there's a playfulness to an interactive art installation, people are just like jumping on that. You know, but you got to be in, I, I don't think it doesn't work in the same way on the, on the screens. Because they're not weird. You know? You know, and that's the thing. It's too much like work. It is. Yeah. I mean, it is. These are or, or something. Yeah. But the weird. I mean, I feel like now it's sort of the Team Human Project is largely mining reality for the weird because it's in the weird where there's all that fertile stuff. It's totally yeah. That's uh, why you know my 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 new books is called High Weirdness, and I go into the weird as a value. Like it's it's a funny term and, and, and Lauren uses it a lot. You know, it's like, oh it's weird, it's like a weird, you know, like we saw that. I mean, I remember thing. when I took old English in college, like they, they there was this poem called The Wanderer and it's this guy, it's a an English guy uh, uh, or whatever they were before England, um, walking around, you know, a Celtic or something, walking around after the fall of Rome, looking at these structures, the, the yeah. ruins of the Roman Empire, going, what are these? Weirds wrought them. Uh, Weirds, as if uh, they're some other entity, some force. I mean, yeah. the weird, 
for them at least, was that which they couldn't remember how this was done. Right, right. You know, yeah. where is the weird yeah. now for and you? It's, where is the weird for you? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. That is a really good question. Where is it for me now? I would say it is partly in creeping up on some of the more uh, creepy elements of our world and then looking at the swerve away, not like getting caught in, for example, you know, um, like uh, sort of new forms of, of biotechnology and the ways in which they can change our physical form and the kind of the way that transhumanists will sort of push the boundary on like the gross factor because they mm -hmm. kind of want you to kind of yuck. Um, I think that place is a very interesting place to be, uh, to, to be aware of. But it's also like really kind of ordinary, like the weird is being able to tune into all the strange little blips and odd human quirks and weird synchronicities that are happening all the time if you're paying attention as you move through space-time, you know, and, that, and that's an endless su su supply. And then experiencing that as pleasurable. You know, it's a, it's a scary moment because there's so many ways you can, you know, fall into the gutter in the of the of the bowling alley of life here. You know, I mean, you you know, I mean, I know. Basically, I'm going to do this show until something I say in a monologue ends up leading to some Twitter mob thing. You know, oh no, that was too this or too that. You know, even the Obama portrait thing is like, oh look, Rushkoff's secretly a racist. You know, he admitted it. You know, now we get to hate him. You know, and oh well, nice show. See you later. Um, you know, that, that, that there's this fear of venturing into that now, right. especially because everything's so public and observed. Yeah. You know, but it's that, it's, it's somehow having a playful, adventurous spirit. It's the same thing you need that you learn in a psychedelic trip. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's weird, that's scary. You know, I remember um, Tim Leary describing uh, someone having a bad acid trip, and he said that the guy was saying, um, oh, no, I'm feeling, really, I'm feeling really robotic. I'm feeling really robotic. And Tim said, oh, that sounds kind of cool. You mean you're moving like a robot? Like you're... And then the guy's like, yeah, and it was all happy, you know? <laughs> That's a perfect example, I think, of no, what we're, what we're saying is that there's something about fear, too. It's like we can overcome a great deal of the ordinary fears that organize our daily life. I believe that. I'm not there, but you can work on that. And as you work on that, and as you be, are able to be in, in with no fear and with no hope, you know, so the Zen people talk about no Living without fear and living without hope. What does that mean? How do you be open and a lot? And I don't mean not hope, meaning that you're cynical or pessimistic. It's just that you no longer use hope in the way that people do in order to get themselves through the day, because that too is part of the story that's sold to us. Oh, here, if you do this, you're going to feel connection. Oh, if you do this, then you're going to be heard. Oh, if you do this, then you're going to be self-fulfilled. This, you're going to be self-realized. And so we, our hopes are also very much, our hopes and fears are manipulated very much. And I don't think you can totally transcend that stuff. You know, maybe if you're a, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, a spiritual superman. But you can work on that. And you can work at being aware of the way in which your fears are on a micro level, organizing your behavior in relationship to all of these sinks and traps and tractor mm -hmm. beams that are always ready to, to zap you. I mean, this is part of why, I mean, I loved the Art Bell show. It was this late night radio show of like deeply weird stuff. But I feel like the the playfulness and it, it, in interrogation, you know, joyful interrogation of the Art Bell show has become more the conspiracy theory of the Alex Jones show, you know, <laughs> which is, a, it's the same subjects, but now there's like some evil entity behind it controlling it all. And, you know, 
What happened to conspiracy theory? I think, well, I mean, there was a period when conspiracy, like from, from the Robert Anton Wilson years, there's a while there where there's conspiracy theory, meaning the people who are obsessively focused on their particular story. And then there's a, a larger, what you could call conspiracy culture, where you sort of consume it and enjoy it the way you do weird religion or other people's ideas about how the physics works or whatever. It's kind of like a display of the range of human reality construction. And there is a kind of playfulness with that. But I think that that space in the kind of post-truth era that, or the, you know, moving towards that, it just gets weaponized like everything else. So it gets weaponized. So you can use the ability of conspiracy theory to undermine people's existing belief structure, but then you immediately exploit it in, only, in order to draw it into a certain resonance or a right. certain political pr program or certain way of capturing attention. So, I mean, I think that's a lot of what's happened is that our, the spaces that we've used to play have become weaponized. Right. And even if not, or, even before know. they're weaponized, even just if they're instrumentalized, yeah. you know, then they're applied. Then you're in the implied science instead of the weird science. I mean, what's this button for? You know, it, what's this button for? It's like, oh, it's just a button, you know? <laughs> it could be, what do you want it to be for? You know? <laughs> Which is where we started with this tech. And it's like, once we had to justify, I mean, and I understand, oh, you know, and, and the sweet guys like Organic Online and, the, and all, you know, they, they were internet people like us and psychedelic people like us. And they're like, oh, no, we could prove to mommy and daddy that we're not just losers playing video games, that there's something here. Look, AT&T wants to buy our thing. They're, now, you sure, you can use the internet to sell things. How about that? You could click on this and buy a record. And then all of a sudden, once it was instrumentalized, it was lost to the to the exploration to the anything's possible yeah. aspect of it. Yeah, no, it's a tough one because you can look at the whole counter, one way of, of saying is that the, what the counterculture did, I think Bruce Sterling talked about it, was sort of like a, it's like a Petri dish. That it, it's a place to explore different modes, both in expression and clothes and fashion and all that kind of stuff that then can be recuperated or become a new place for capital to extend itself. But more subtly in consciousness that that you know we, we're learning how to bring our consciousness more intimately into certain feedback environments. You know, there's all this feedback in the '60s: guitar feedback, video feedback, all the sort of trips, festivals, all mm -hmm. this way of playing with what happens when we circulate ourselves through media machines. And now you can look back and look at that and go, oh, this is just all real primitive forms of seeing how we can organize it. So to say, when I look at the 90s and I go, well, were we just idiots? They go, no, we weren't idiots. We were taking a certain, we saw a gap or a space of possibility and we're, we were basically rolling the dice forward with like great glee. You know, I was thinking about this with, with Barlow. Right. So Barlow dies. And then it's like, it was really interesting. We're on net time, which is full of like super hypercritical, lefty, anarcho thinkers who just don't take any bullshit. No silicon, No Silicon Valley <laughs> bullshit. And so there's a lot of negative stuff about Barlow. And I had to go, yeah, like I understand politically why some of his ideas fed into the hands of the corporate situation we're in now. But at the same time, I know the guy, I know his spirit, his energy, he's on my team, I'm on his team in a way, even though we disagree yeah. about a lot of stuff. And part of it is because he would, that's that kind of spirit, is like, you can see the monsters in the room, but like, what else are you gonna do? So let's roll the dice forward. And, you know, we got the role we did. And I don't know, and so do we, do you like get offline and try to find that other thing somewhere else that's outside of the 
out of this, the octopus? I, I don't know. I, I haven't done that. So it's a, it's a hard question where the weird is, where that edge, where that playfulness might be. And, and how about you? Where do you, where do you, how, where do you find playfulness? And the team <laughs> with the others. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm finishing with the book thing and doing the team thing. What does that you know? mean? You're like the you're... book thing, I sit alone in a room with a computer oh, and write depressing. a book, you know? And yeah, what if I become self-actualized? That's going to be pretty fucking lonely, you know? <laughs> I don't want to be self-actualized. Yeah, self they warn you about that. I don't want to be self-actualized. I want to be, you know, group-realized, you know? And it's sort of a, a, a different goal at this point, yeah, you know? Yeah. I, I, you know, you were asking before about a group thing, and there's always something, I, it's like, the, maybe this is just as creepy as, as anything else, but I, I'm still a, a, like this idea for a way to use technology and consciousness alteration in a very interesting way to play with group groups, which is that if you have a way, like a bunch of people are, are meditating or getting into an altered state, they could be drifting into hypnagogy or whatever, and each person is connected with, with a biofeedback device that is that is representing the, their state, whether it's EEG or whatever, with some pattern on a screen that everybody's looking at. So initially, everybody has all these different patterns because everyone's doing their own thing. But then through the logic of biofeedback, you, cannot, you begin to resonate and harmonize these connections. And so you could use that device as a way to create in the moment, in a real space, but also using this, this gear, a strange kind of resonance. Because I think that's a lot of what we're looking for, isn't just the weird, but what resonance is. Because resonance is a slippery, analog-y thing. It can be instrumentalized and weaponized too, but it's also, I think, a lot what we look for when we're in the crowd and who we're meeting and who's, who we're connecting with and like, oh, so we hear something and it's like something's going off. So it's like, how do we use how do we come up with ways to allow groups to resonate in new ways that create patterns, overtones, forms of collectivity that we're just not even aware of yet? And that it might be precisely in those energies that we're able to mobilize more group, and group responses to these situations. Well, Eric, I want to make you Jefe del Resonance yeah. of Team Human. Thank oh. you so much for coming on Team All right, Human. Man. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. You come back. You're on Team Human. Conscious intervention in the machine. We're taking back the controls, not to restore order, but to promote chaos. You are not a number. You are a human being. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human, coming to you alive from Gray Area Foundation for the Arts, Historic Grand Theater, a physical barricade on the front line of humankind's opposition to digitally amplified capitalism. Playing cleanup for Team Human, the founder of Gray Area Foundation for the Arts, community organizer and our host, Josette Melchor. Hi. Hi. I'm in your house. Um, <laughs> we used to do, and I want to do it again, this segment on Team Human called Real People Doing Real Things. Okay. And it was almost, a, it meant almost sarcastically that what Team Human's going to do, we're going to scour the earth for someone who's not blogging about it, not blogging about other people doing it, not creating a website where all the people who do this thing can congregate, but someone who's actually doing something in the real world, a real person doing a real thing. And 
my God, you've done a real thing. I have. <laughs> I, I, I want to thank you on Saturday night, too, um, and, and being in, in Gray Area and supporting us. And we only exist because of you. Um, the organization is a community-based organization. The reason I've done this for so long is because of the strong community connection. Um, yeah, I, I think I've been driven because of the faces in the room, because of the, the friends and the connections that I've made, because of the connections to the neighborhood, because of the connections to the city, um, because of the connection to buildings and history. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's just that sort of thing that drives me to, to create an organization like this. I mean, and Gray Area is unique in that, I, and I don't know if you all know the origin story, but it's not, you're not this trust fund kid who took a couple million dollars and bought the thing. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, I've been perceived as such by political entities and um, by neighborhoods. And I came from, I'm Hispanic, I'm queer, I'm obviously a woman, hopefully you know that. Um, I did that like, that, that thing that was going viral, that coups thing that was like switching oh, your gender. Face? And yeah. it said like, here's what it would be like if you're a, a female. So it like accidentally thought I was a male. <laughs> which was awesome. <laughs> and so it put makeup on me and then like made my eyebrows skinnier. Um, and I just went through the whole process of like reversing my eyebrows from what I had done to them in high school. So um, <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, I grew up in the Coachella Valley and uh, my, my mother, single mother, raised three kids. And being in Hispanic culture, I think it's sort of one of these things where she, first of all, she didn't have the means to take me to galleries or museums or anything like that, and it was just not something that was embedded in our in our culture um, as a family unit. And so, I think primarily a lot of my youth was spent um, sports and um, questioning why the hell I was living in the desert because it's totally not a place that people should live and it's a waste of resources and there's golf courses sprouting up there. And so, I hardly go back, um, I'm going back uh, soon, though. I'm a little bit nervous because my, my partner is meeting my parents, but in any event. Um, <laughs> you can bring one of her apps to get, bring some, some Amazon yeah. Turks with you. Yeah. That'll help tell you. Will what you guys to do. help me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then, but so you, you had a job. I, I had many, several couple jobs. Um, when, when you thought this up, how? So, so when I thought this up, let's not go, I was mixing paint in the paint department at Home Depot. That was my first job. But uh, I was a mortgage loan consultant, this one, or? Yeah, um, I guess, so yeah. I, I was selling mortgage loans at a bank and um, eventually, like, I was basically like 19 and I realized how to lease warehouses. And um, somehow, just because I think of my height, I, I, some people just always thought I was older. Um, so I used that to my advantage to buy liquor, to lease warehouses, to start gray area. <laughs> I mean, because it's, the, it's, the, it's like the, I mean, I know is that kind of a raver kid, that's the ultimate kind of rave dream. <laughs> Let's get a warehouse and we'll make an art space. Maybe we'll live in the top. And this, but you actually did it. It wasn't just, it wasn't just, I you know, it like bong times, talk. I think. Um, yeah, I released the first warehouse in, in Los Angeles in Echo Park. And that was kind of, uh, it was called the Here Gallery. It was like, this kind of, um, we booked indie bands, like Airborne Toxic event played there. And I had a bunch of installation art. And there were six people that lived in there, um, including myself. And then I fell in love with someone in San, that wanted to, was it, 
like didn't like LA anymore. And so I moved to San Francisco because of that. And then I started working in technology and I started doing, I worked at this company called Fusion Storm, which still exists. It was like, um, I had to sell hardware and manage services, which got me into like all the tech talk and then also start, I was running a gallery, like I immediately leased a space in Soma right when I moved here um, to run a loft and, and uh, run, run a gallery. And then um, I, started working in technology and started to understand the 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 dis, like the disparate communities that exist in San Francisco. So there's this whole tech scene of like people pitching each other, selling products, and then you've got this whole other art scene um, in, in in gallery spaces and studios. And so I was kind of floating between those two worlds at some point when I first moved here um, in 2005. And um, that's when I sort of met Peter Hirschberg, who's, who's the chairman of our board, and we started have this, having this conversation about digital art, and he had just bought a piece from Bitforms Gallery in New York. And so um, we started, I was just amazed because it sort of all of a sudden, I, I was talking to him about digital art, and I'm like, why the hell isn't there a space like this in San Francisco? Why doesn't this exist as a massive thing or like something that people are supporting more and more? Um, he asked, we basically were just like talking to each other like back and forth about like why this was important and I had just been invited by the uh, Mayor's Office of Economic Development and the Entertainment Commission to move my gallery from South of Market to the Tenderloin um, uh, neighborhood and so that kind of moment in time um, allowed me to, to form the mission and sort of like create a center and we were originally in the, in the Tenderloin as a nonprofit. But um, you did it from the ground up, so you weren't yeah. using the model of, you know, whatever, the Guggenheim. Thing. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought that the Guggenheims got rich from the museum. I didn't know that, oh, they started with money. And I mean, you did, and so, and that's when you, even gray area, am I projecting, or did you mean gray area as this weird liminal thing? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, even recently I've had to learn to say I'm queer and that I'm Mexican and that hmm. I'm a woman because I don't prescribe to genres or definitions, and, and it's exactly what I meant when I, when I named it. It was this sort of, like, stepping away from all of that and creating a safe space for communities to explore and realizing how important that was to me when I moved away from my hometown and my, my family and hadn't accepted me as a, a queer a queer woman, and so these safe spaces were just extremely important for me as a, as a human. And so, um, yeah, that's exactly what it it, it means. And everything, I appreciate you like pitching it better than I can. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I love it. I love it. So, you say in, in on the website it says that you know one of the kind of the functions of the space is to is art that humanizes technology. And part of me, I'm like, cool. And part of me, I go, uh-oh. You know, that's what Sergey wants, you know? Let us think that these technologies, think that a search engine's a person so we don't, you know, so we accept it into our bodies. Um, I'm afraid of humanizing technology because then I'll, I'll get fooled. Yeah, I think there's, there's that. Uh, but there's also the education piece of it. And I think that that's sort of the infused into what we do and what I think is important and what, how I grew up. It's sort of like I wasn't exposed to this kind of thing. And, and I think that what we're trying to do when I say humanize or when we say humanize technology is, is that, is that we're trying to 
bring these newer technologies like neural networks, machine learning, into the hands of people in the mission or people that might not be exposed to that type of work. And so that's, I guess that's sort of what I mean. But of course, like the cities come to us uh, and the, the MTA up for, you know, let's say a $25 million grant a couple years ago and they wanted to deploy um, self-driving cars. And so they're like, gray area, can you help us, you know, make this not scary to people? Right. And so there's this thing, you know, there's these, these, these opportunities that we get pre presented with. propaganda. Right. Yeah. And I thought it was cool because I was like, oh, I'll do the, a parade of <laughs> the world's first parade of self-driving cars. Uh, we didn't get the grant, so I don't know how that would have ended up. But um... I'm still imagining <laughs> posses of skateboard kids, like just living to fool autonomous vehicles, you know, just creating new things. It seems inevitable. It'll be a new subculture. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so, and then, and right now, you're particularly interested in art and neural networks. Uh, I think that that's sort of like so. We did this collaboration with Google, and it ended up creating the Artists and Machine Intelligence Program at Google. And um, it was back in. I mean, it's been a, these things happen so fast. And it was this was February 2016. Um, we did the. Art of Neural Networks ex exhibit, and it was right around when the the Deep Dream algorithm was released. And I think, with our community and with the Creative Code community, art and technology community, whenever a new technology is released, it starts to be exploited um, for its potential, its bias. And I think that's the important um, thing that artists need to start are, are going to start um, highlighting is just the biases that we have within neural networks. Um, I'm particularly interested in that. I'm particularly interested in curating an exhibit um, when I have time <laughs> around that. Right. I mean, in some ways, art, you know, I, I'm trying to do it, you know, in the classroom, which is kind of hard, like didactically. Technologies have biases, you know, you know and, and, and which is itself in academia is rejected now. They hate, you're not, you, now you can say affordances, it turns out. Media, different media have different affordances, but you're not allowed to say bias, because then that's techno-determinist, and do we, you can't be techno-determinist anymore, as if what? Technology's not determining stuff? Of course it's determining stuff. My God. Anyway, um, but art reveals biases, and that's why it was like, tripping on Lauren's stuff, it reveals biases in a way that people can really, really resonate with it rather than have it just intellectually told to them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this, this piece that I, I really liked by um, Katsu. He's a graffiti artist. He does this piece that was, I don't know if people saw it. It was um, these, there were these wheat-pasted um, Elon Musk uh, portraits all around San Francisco last summer. It was like AI criminals, and um, I don't know if people saw that, but he essentially took this this database of um, mob mugshots and like just ran um, a machine learning algorithm that he developed, and like had them all morph into each other. And the the statement was just like around the fact that we can train our AI to be criminals, we can train our AI to be uh, Democrats, or we can train our AI to be religious, and so I think that these sorts of like questions, like, like that Lauren poses or Katsu poses, or just these ideas, I think it's just important to get into people's minds. Um, I think that's the job of the artist. I don't think it's anything necessarily further than that. I mean, it is interesting because you know when I think about you know the movies that played with the dangers of this stuff you know, early on, say even a, a minority report, you know, the Philip K. Dick kind of stuff, that that's now 
almost the goal of developers now. Oh, hey, that looks pretty minority. But oh, we could do a predictive algorithms for crime. That looks cool. You know, rather than seeing them as cautionary tales, they see them as business plans. You know, and it feels like though that in this space, maybe it's because it's a community space and not, you know, this sort of entertainment movie closure thing that it helps keep alive the questioning of it rather than, you know, the sort of the commercialization. In, yeah, commercialization or the instrument. Oh, I can instrumentalize that idea. You know, the whole way everything on Star Trek. Oh, look, start. You know, I have a Star Trek phone. You know, it, it it's a little bit less aspirational. We're constantly like just being in San Francisco and being in Silicon Valley. We're constantly up against that question of like, you know, what's the business model for this art piece, or like, what you know, what why is in your education program doing um, uh, job training or you know this sort of thing? And it's like we're doing this for conceptual development and for artistic development. We're not doing this for the next app or the next game. This is about questioning culture as a whole. And um, people don't understand that. And, and it's, it's weird, like we're in such a gray area. We're such a, I hate saying that, but we are. It's like, it makes so much sense. We're in this weird place between the mission community, Silicon Valley, and the government. I mean, that's like a right. big piece of like, of, of, of things we butt up against. And there's, even with funders or foundations, they're always trying to put us in a bucket of, you know, visual well, art. And how do you assess? Art. How do you assess? <laughs> you know, how do you assess the students? How do you measure your success? It's like we don't. Well, it's like if you developed a successful project that people enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that, that, that's. I think, and everybody does when they go through our program. So. Right, because you give them fly, give them handouts to fill out cards. I enjoyed this a nine out of ten. So look, nine out of ten people gave it a nine out of ten. Uh, I mean, it, you're you're in addition to being a a art supporter, you're a community organizer, you know. And uh, where, you know, I met you years ago, but then I saw you back in the news when um, uh, the ghost ship happened. You know, the ghost ship fire, which, I mean, it, it, I'm sure it hit all of you really intensely. It hit me intensely because I had, um, there was another one called the Piano Factory uh, Ironworks that, that was one where I, a similar setup, and it, it changed my life interacting with those people. My whole first novel was about that. I mean, and, and can you describe how you and, and, and Gray Area ended up coming to the aid of that situation? Yeah, um... Last year, uh, so so December second, twenty sixteen, was an employee offsite. It was like our first employee offsite after we had um, had our first year of permits of this space. So like, start there. So we're offsite at my house, twenty minute walk from here. Not not anymore. I live in Berkeley because I can't afford it anymore. But. Um, 20 minutes from here talking about how amazing it was to serve the community that that year and how we were so excited that we finally got through the bureaucracy of, of what it takes to get a building like this up and running, which I just will tell you that the permitting process and the bureaucracy to create an art space in San Francisco is ridiculous and I don't even know how I did it and I don't know how anybody else can do it. And I, if any, I commend everyone that can get any business up and running and pay taxes and do all the things that come along with it. Um, but we're off site 
we're proud of our work and we're talking about the future and how we're going to sustain and all of us are you know having a great time had some drinks at the end and we're all texting about going to this warehouse in in Oakland and um I was like I can't do that I I don't do that anymore um I don't go to raves anymore and you guys go have a great time and uh then later on I get texts and I start seeing all the news and you know my my half of my staff's on the way there and our sound engineer is in the building and we had just talked about the future of gray area and I literally just watched as the news unfolded on social media and via text messages from friends essentially just telling me that they couldn't find all of these people and I didn't sleep and I had run um, crowdfunding campaigns for this theater, uh, raised $400,000 through 500 donors and had to run a, several others, including fire relief for, for other warehouses and just decided with text to my staff that we were gonna put up a fundraising page and did did a bunch of research because we did crowdsourced in the past and found you caring and set it up in 10 minutes, put it up. It was the only thing that I knew to do. Mm. It's essentially the only thing that I knew to do was to, to help the community. This is the only thing I could do at that point. And put it up and I think we were just so connected to the tragedy and in, from the perspective of, I started gray area in a warehouse like that. I had a staff member in there. I knew six people. My other staff member knew 14 people that passed. And we were just, I mean, I essentially spent all of 2017 dealing with the fire relief fund for Ghost Ship. And I mean, honestly, it was a detriment to gray area. We've been in a deficit because of it. It, it was a, a tremendous amount of work to serve that many people. and. It's it, it completely changed my life. I've had to go to therapy. I mean, essentially, the the every time I've seen a tragedy, a shooting, a fire, all the fires recently, I mean, I just get this sense that I need to go do something, and I shouldn't. I should just stop everything and go help people. And like this, this doesn't matter anymore. These people dying. There's people losing their homes, and so I've had to go through like this whole soul searching moment of like why is this important, why should we do, why should I do what I'm doing? And so it it completely changed my life in the way that you're saying, and and I mean, rest in peace to 36 people mm -hmm. that we lost, and I will, the organization will never be the same, I will never be the same. Um, we took a lot of, uh, we saw for firsthand also the the sort of like, right-wing trolls, which I think a lot of people don't didn't realize that we were experiencing, We we got like, targeted like crazy, um, including myself. Like I was being chased by um, news cameras. There were people coming to the to gray area asking us for money. Um, it was it was intense, and um, we 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 were also being trolled by like right. I forget the guy's name, but he was this right wing troll that was organizing all of these people to create fake sympathy groups on Facebook and essentially like inviting all the people to, um, to join in and then sending false news to the, to the media 
um, about things that gray area was doing, like embezzling money or like all these sorts of things. So these were coming from, these rumors were coming from right-wing trolls that created sympathy groups. And that story wasn't being told at all because I couldn't get a newscaster to tell that story because they just loved the story of gray areas stealing money and mm. like in this space of tragedy, you know, all this sort of stuff. Like these, these, these things start, instead of gray area is serving the community and we're trying to serve the community that we like serve year round and we're deeply connected and we're trying to do it right. Um, I mean, I felt like a, a, a guardian of that money because of my friends that had passed away and there was so much fraud. I just saw so, I saw the worst side of humanity. Mm. Even the ghost, the, the ghost ship uh, experience is part of a, a larger skill that you bring to the table, which is, I guess what I want to ask you about to, to close this conversation is, is how do you, how do you hold space? If you know what I mean? That, you know, I know how to, I know how to do a podcast. I know how to talk. And now it looks like we know how, you know, if I work with you, I can get people to come and participate in all that. But what you, you're, you're holding, you hold space for people. I mean, what, and that's what we need. I, I feel like that's what we need as a culture more than anything right now is a way to hold space for one another rather than to just be in our little silos. I mean, what have you, what have you learned? What are sort of the, the, the basic principles for me to learn how to sort of begin to hold space? I'm gonna say the most boring answer ever because you have to get public assembly permits and you have to go that entire process because I mean it's kind of like but you know that might be really important. Take care um, of the stuff. I it's mean, it's just like I mean it comes back to the ghost ship stuff. It's like you've got to make a safe space for people to gather, and that's like the ultimate thing that people need to understand when you're creating a space. You need to understand how people can get out how people can arrive, how people are going to be in the space and how they're going to engage one another. At the same time, the other aspect of that is, of course, like the people. You have to be good people. Like You have to be a good person, and you have to follow through on everything that you say. So if you say something, you better do it. Even if it takes you 10 years, sometimes things take me 10 years, I will do them. And I think that's super important. I think that people need to be good humans, and that will just bring you know, the goodness out of humanity. Well, thank you for creating space for all of these humans of the team of humans. Uh, really, it, it, it's a, it's, I won't even want to call it an achievement, you know, it's because it's, it, it's beyond that. But uh, please uh, call on Team Human for help whenever you need it. We are, we are, your, we are your fans and your inhabitants. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Josette. Um, please stay up here. Let's, let's bring up uh, Lauren and Eric. We've got some minutes. Everybody needs to pee, just pee, you know, just go pee and come back, it's okay. Um, 
we've got another 15, 20 minutes, and I thought it'd be fun to, like, you've all heard each other. I mean, and rather than just me asking questions of people, if they're... Are there things you heard from each other that you kind of want to respond to as long, long as we're all here together? Do you have questions for each other? Yeah, I'm, I'm just so in awe of what just happened and like what everything that Josette does. Um, I, I, you know, she's sharing like some of the difficulties, but like that's, that's only like what she shares. I can't even imagine you know, we're all here. I don't know. Sorry, I just had to like yeah. <laughs> exude how um, just totally in awe I am of what she does. Thank you. I feel the same way for you. I know. It's such a, a fitting way to just kind of finish our, you know, we've been hosted, you hosted us, you know, and it's, it's good to sort of know where, where are we, you know, where are we, how did this happen? And I don't see the logistics as a, uh, at all of a cop-out question, it's like, no. I mean, when you think about what went wrong in the hippie movement, it was like, you know, the guys were all getting stoned and the women were making the food, cleaning up, working the jobs. I mean, it's there, it's, someone has to actually create the, do the more actual work. There's actual work. Go through the permitting process, yeah. It's a, it's a complete, utter nightmare. And the, it's, yeah, it's really important to have those political connections and relationships and the, the you know, it all, you always fall back on your word, I think, at the end of the day. Well, I was, I was going to ask you about that, is, is uh, how, I was really struck by your comment about following through and doing what you're going to do and being a good person in the sense of particularly being true to your word, which is something, it's a value that I've, I kind of probably always had it a little bit, but I've sort of, I've had to learn how important that was mm -hmm. in my life you know, and to stick with that. And I'm just kind of curious, where did that come from? For you, was that something that you just always had, or was it you started to see like, wait, the more that I'm in integrity, the more the whole thing works, and so I just have to kind of affirm that this is how I'm going to be? Yeah, I, I've never really thought about that deeply. I think uh, I know where my like naivety comes from in terms of like just like jumping into something. Uh, my mom, I mean, just would not stop telling me that I could do anything like over and over, and that's like the most basic thing I think you tell a parent. But she just, I mean, it's the only thing I remember her telling me. And uh, that, I think, somehow stuck with me. I think, I'm not, I mean, honestly, I don't exactly know where that comes from. But it's, it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse in a way because I, I, I've had to be careful about things that I say because I'll, just remember that I said that, like, and then I'll, it just will weigh on me. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I, I, I should, mm -hmm. I should totally, I've started to see like this, um, a, um, a shaman therapist, my, one of my, when I was going through this whole thing with the, with the ghost ship, um, one of my board members, Diane Eisner, like essentially like, was like, just that I'm paying for these four sessions with this shaman and this therapist. And um, we went through this sort of, sort of like, whole uh, series of like investigations around trauma that you're holding from your ancestors and your grandparents and your grandmother and your mother. And uh, that had never really, I've never really thought about that. And I also think that some of the, my traits obviously come from ancestors that I don't know. And it's stuff that I've been trying to, to think about when I've been dreaming and, and um, 
and yeah, it's just recent, like, recent things I've been sort of thinking about, like, it, that, all of that stuff infused in your DNA. Uh, yeah, now we know that that's true, you know, yeah. people used to say that and everyone was like, oh yeah, well, yeah, come on, it's not really true, and now we know with epigenetics that you actually do carry DNA expressions of the experiences of your, of your, of your four folks. So Resonances, cool. yeah. yeah. I mean, something else that, that seemed in common for all these discussions was we're talking about, you know, how do we be kind of free-thinking, artistic, human humans, and how do we interface with the highly instrumentalized reality that we're living in? You want to create an art space? You got to deal with the public permits. You know, the, you, you, want to, you want to date in the Tinder reality? You know, or how do we maintain coherence in a world where everybody's on social media all the time? You know, and it's, it's, you know, whether we hold space or whether we, we maintain focus, whether we playfully uh, uh, resist even, uh, or, or playfully flip, you know, it's all about like sort of holding on to that sacred, artistic, playful, you know, love stuff, the soft and squishy parts that are, you know, they're so easy to, to toughen. Mm -hmm. That's what I like about podcasts. Actually, just talking to people and then being like, not, I'm not going to be an interview or I'm going to like risk something or say stuff that I don't know or don't know where the conversation is going. And even in just that little moment, there's this kind of slippage and you're doing it and you don't know what it means to people out there and it kind of resonates out there. So I, I think that's like as opposed to writing a piece or having a speech or having a, you know, where you're in control of all the statements, when you really model conversations, and that's a lot of what I, when I do my podcast, it's like, yeah, it's about content and ideas. But a lot of it is just getting better and better at modeling, being with people live where you don't really know what's going on. And you're willing to open up and change each other in the conversation that you're actually having. And that's making space. Yeah, I think we have to like, ask less of each other so we can ask more of each other. Like, stop asking me to like your thing and share your thing and look at your and pay attention all the time. And like, let's just... Like, tell me how you're actually doing. Tell me what you need me to do, and I'll try to do that. And that's actually hard. I think it's easy to say, like, oh, we like the weird, and we like the, the love and the playful, but, like, it's, it comes with all the tough stuff, too. And something weird is weird because it's uncomfortable, and it's, right. we don't know how to deal with it. And so I think the problem is when we go out and say, like, oh, I just want the, those good feelings. It's like, you don't get just the good ones. You have to take all of them. And if you can't deal with all of them, you're going to have none of them. And that's kind of what social media is a lot of time. Speaking of all of them, maybe we should hear. Did you guys have thoughts? You guys, I want to say, I hate those. I want my gender neutral pronouns. You people, um, you got thoughts, questions, concerns, things that occurred to you? There's one back here. Uh, th thanks to everyone. This is awesome. Um, the, when you spoke of hooking everybody up on the far right, um, my right, to uh, shared experience, it made me think of uh, resonance and well, actually, cetaceans like whales and, and dolphins, I've heard that they communicate better than we do uh, collectively, like that there's some science behind some m more evolved form of group communication than what we currently have, which we're just maybe beginning to learn about. Do you have any thoughts on um, 
on that topic, I guess any of you, is, is that what we're maybe moving towards? Like are all these growing pains of um, learning to communicate better as a uh, I can never say the word species. Yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the things that's really striking about 20th century history, turn of the last night, you know, the, the last century, is that people were very aware that we were going to a global order. And a lot of what people, the progressive side of, of society was thinking about was like, how do we create a way to be together on a global scale? And this is people not just trying to exploit globalism in a colonialist way, but recognizing that we had to bring different religions together, people around the world or whatever. And a lot of the 20th century is this kind of like, on, on, on this noble side, is a, how do we be together and on this new, in this new frame? And then it, a lot of those projects crash and burn for all sorts of reasons, their own biases, their own blindnesses, the impossibility of what they were trying to do. You know, the idea that like we would bring television and then television would help us knit the world together because we would see how other people are suffering. And this idea just repeats and repeats and repeats. And it's kind of amazing that it repeats because like we, we've definitely tried that one out, at least with that tech, and it doesn't seem to work. And yet, you know, oh, there's long-distance learning. Okay, that's going to help, you know, whatever. There's always this kind of gesture towards, and I think what we're reaching for is some way of resonating beyond language. I don't know what that means. Where there is some kind of shared something, and it's not just because we're consuming the same media or we have, we, we both, we're all going to die or whatever the way you're trying to get the individuals and connected. What does that look like? I don't know. Would, it, would that be the worst form of, of weaponized mind control that, of all the things we've been talking about? I don't know that either. But it does feel like ra that if, if we're still staying open to the possibility that we can have some kind of genuine connection or empathetic or a, a, a even identity with very large groups, even the species as a whole, it has to come through something, to my, it seems like we have to come through something like resonance whatever that means, whether technology can help or whether it's hurting, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, it's where we came from. You know, it's the tree, you've read The Secret Life of Trees and all there. Trees are not individual. They're all connected, and there's, you know, mushrooms under the ground that are helping them share resources. You know, the evolution was not the survival of the fittest at all. Evolution's been about social creatures and how do we, how do we team up to do stuff. And then... You know, humans, we experience this great fiction of individuality, and you know, certainly through the Renaissance, we invent the individual, and now we're thinking, well, how can we be individuals and retrieve that thing? And I guess the question's gonna be whether we do it through some invention technology that we create, or whether we can retrieve whatever that innate ability is. You know, do we, do we you know, is Facebook and surveillance just practice for the age when everyone's going to know what everyone's thinking because we all connect again. You know, we'll, we'll find out, I guess. That kind of stole my question a little bit because I was thinking about the theory that big data is making a central nervous system for the world based on how globalization is making people more aware of one another. That, And I think that might actually not be so... Um, it's not separate really from being human. It's sort of like the need to connect and the need to understand what's happening are very human qualities. And I just wondered what you thought about that biological metaphor, any of you? Well, I think about the idea that 
yeah, so we can all have shared data input, but we are already, you know, we have shared data input when we kind of look, use our eyes or our ears or our senses, but we have like radically different understandings of what's happening in reality, right? Like totally different. And we forget that a lot of the time and think like, oh, wait, what she's seeing is what I'm seeing. And then I can't believe she's acting like that because I wouldn't act like that. Um, and so I, th I think it's uh, funny when people start to say like, oh, and then when you have VR, AR, like we'll have these totally different views of what's going on and shit will be crazy. And it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. So I'm not, uh, it's always hard for me to tell if we're like coming, becoming more in line with, you know, what I'm seeing versus what the person next to me is seeing or if they're becoming further apart or if maybe it getting further apart makes us more in tune with the idea that they were never close together to begin with. So um, just on the topic of like how to retain our humanity in a digital age, um, I work in a game company, it's all about teamwork. So on a day-to-day, -day, I need to juggle around like interacting with designers, or, I mean, myself being an artist and programmer and the programming team and the uh, project manager. So like on a day-to-day -day basis, I need to maintain a level of agileness and responsiveness to people that I work with. But somehow I feel like subconsciously I took that mentality to like how I interact with like friends or other people like, like in daily life, which is, I mean, I mean, I mean, which is not how you should expect people to do when you are in a day-to-day -day job environment. So how do you like balance that, learning to respond, respond, respond to like back to the normal life kind of stuff? Yeah. How do you, how do you interact with, um, with your team? Is that what, I didn't it's quite. Like, you know, When, when you are in, in a job environment, you need to be quick, 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 but that's not how you interact with people like in a normal like life setting, but how do you just rebalance your mentality so that to you, you don't get upset when your friend don't text you back or like, I mean, simple stuff like that, you know? That's particularly poignant when you're like starting to date, right? Like I was in a seven-year relationship and then like, I um, and you're used to that like constant person that you just have access to. You know, I'm eating now. I'm like leaving the room. Like it's just like <laughs> the most basic text. And and then I you know out of that relationship. And then you're in this like you probably studied. You probably like thought about this a little bit. But like you're like in in this like new cycle of communication with these people that just like have all these weird insecurities and like you, I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm such a like communicator cause I have to deal with so many communities and then I have to realize that other people are not like that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't exactly know, I don't have any advice for you, but I think we all experience that exact I mean, thing. part of the reason you experience it at work, I mean, that's why they call it work, right? This, you know, you go into the zone, you're, you're an employee and they're buying your time and in that time they want you to be this agile receptive thing. The, the question is then, how do we not translate that into our lives? And I think part of the issue is that the people on the other side of these digital communications don't necessarily 
feel as impatient as the interfaces on these communications convey. Right? The, the interfaces, the, the, the email programs, the Snapchats and things want as much engagement as quickly as they can. So they're going to make every message feel somehow by using Stanford, you know, Keptology Lab science techniques. They're going to be having it beg you, quick, this is an emergency. Everything's going to be so urgent. But if you can realize it's the interface that's urgent, this person, they've taken a message and put it into an asynchronous medium. They've put it in a stack. So you get to it when you damn well please. It's not the phone ringing, you know what I mean? It's, it's a message they left in a box. So you get to it when you want to, and I think, that's, I think that's okay. And you'll find the slower you respond to email, the slower it starts to come back, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, we're over time. So what I want to do, I want to thank our three wonderful guests, Lauren McCarthy, Josette Melchor, and Eric Davis for playing for Team Human tonight. You've been on Team Human, human intervention in the machine, coming to you live from the Gray Area Foundation's historic Grand Theater. You can support Team Human, gain access to our Slack channel, and free admission to live events like this one by subscribing through our page at patreon.com slash teamhuman or the link at teamhuman.fm. Thanks again to Josette Melchor, Sebra Guggins, Alric Burns, and everyone at Gray Area for making this possible. Our producer and engineer, Stephen Bart Bartolome, I always do that. To our team players, Lauren McCarthy, Eric Davis, Josette Melchor, and all of you for showing up live and in the flesh. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.